This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Diana Hope and I'm delighted to be introducing this groundbreaking event today with Andrew O'Hagan and his novel The Life and Opinions of Math the Dog and his friend Marilyn Monroe. This event is sponsored by The List, which is Edinburgh's must-have magazine, all you need to know about everything that's happening in August, and a big thank you to them. Andrew O'Hagan is a writer, essayist and editor he has been um, on the Booker shortlist. He's won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the E.M. Forster Award. This is his fourth novel, and he's joined on stage by the actress Ian McDermott, who is currently pl playing in the Prince of Homburg at the Donmar and has just got off a plane to be here this morning. A lot of you, yes, exactly. A lot of you will actually recognise Ian because not only did he write the stage adaptation of Andrew's last novel, Be Near Me, but he also played the lead part in that very successful uh, staging. We're, he's also joined by uh, Suzanne Burtish, who's currently playing Lady Cunard in Madonna's film, and she too, about Wallace Simpson, and she too has uh, come racing up to be here. And rising star, Andrew Holly. <laughs> And rising star Andrew Holly, who was last night, was filming on a dog track in Oxford. And he too has raced up to be here. I think that's a film called The, the Strays. The Strays, so look out for that. Um, and this is really an exciting and innovative event. And uh, we're amazingly lucky, all of us. I'm going to sit at the front and just listen to. They're going to enact scenes from this really sparkling novel. If you haven't read it, boy, you're in for a big treat. It, uh, it's our chance to see this being enacted first because it's going to actually be a big Holly Hollywood movie, this wonderful book. And uh, so this is a very exciting event and we're absolutely delighted to be putting it on here. Andrew is going to take questions after the enactment, so feel free to ask him anything you want. Okay, good luck. One. Frank Sinatra comes to Sherman Oaks. Like no card or holly go lightly, Miss Natalie Wood had what you might call a cocktail hour mentality. She threw back several of those Gibson martinis and her breath smelt sweetly of gin and pickled onions, while her mother made her dark Russian remarks and the Hawaiian staff stood over by the piano waiting for orders, hands clasped before them and big eyes staring forward. An hour or more passed with laughter, hard looks, industry gossip and little panics, punctuated now and then with bursts of television gunfire from the upstairs part of the house in Sherman Oaks. All the while, Natasha grew more outrageous, more sexy, more Natalie. Seeking a part for herself in Frank's current preoccupations, she decided to ask him about the Kennedy campaign. Natalie had an instinctive adoration of the high ranking. Well, we got him elected, Frank said. We did the fundraisers, we got him elected. Let's see if TP can't keep his promises. TP? Said Mrs. Gordon. The president, Mama. Natalie swung round with a little too much energy. 
They're the Jack Pack, she said. You're cute. She giggled in the way that girls always giggled around Sinatra, loading every chime with a sonorous appeal for approval. Frank loved it. Frank beamed. As the man said, the, he's the nation's favorite guy. He cares for the underdog, said Natalie. That's right, sister. That's my bag, too. I believe in the Bill of Rights. That's why I wanted to hire one of the blacklisted guys to write that war picture. You know what the Hearst Papers did? They murdered me, honey. The bums mugged me. I'm talking about the Hearst Papers. John Wayne, General Motors, Cardinal Spellman. It was a high-end lynch mob, honey, and I'll never forgive them. Maybe Kennedy can make a difference in this country. I've been fighting against lynch mobs all my life, but I had to lose the rider. Wayne's a fink, said Natalie. Jesus, the guy's been out of line for 30 years. He's a nut. He made as if to wave the subject out of the way. We had more to add. I tell you, Princess, that fella would throw a thousand better fellas in prison just to show he's the big tough marshal in town. He'd burn a thousand books to avoid reading one. That's a fact, Mrs. Gurdin. Well, what can I tell you? John Wayne is a schmuck. He's a loser, and there's no part for losers in the new game. Kennedy, said Natalie, like a groupie. That's right, Princess. A shadow flickered in the hall, and then I heard a thump on the stairs and a door closing. That election was in the bag, made in the shade, said Frank. Success guaranteed. It might have been close, but to me it was always a cert. We did a lot of campaigning in Hawaii. He tilted his glass to the barman, as if resettling a score. But there's a lot to fix in this country. Some Charlies want to hold the world back, and I'm talking Democrats too. You know, Sammy got booed by those sons of bitches from Mississippi when we were singing the Star Spangled Banner, right there at the convention when Jack got the nomination. Well, said Natalie, a flush coming into her cheeks. Pleasure, I thought. She had the clever pupil's delight at finding herself ready with an answer. Dr. King's father was ready to vote Republican. He said he would be voting for Mr. Lincoln's party. Jack was on to that. When they arrested King and put him up there in Reedsville prison, Jack called his wife. The wife's pregnant. Jack calls her to say he's thinking about her. Is that classy or what? Frank was so jumpy, he couldn't really sit down. And he nearly tripped over me several times before we were introduced. Talking about Kennedy seemed to make him worse. Maria? He said to Mrs. Gordon, pacing back from the windows. I brought you a little uh, smile maker. All pretty girls should have presents. Mrs. Gordon touched her throat and behaved as if her pleasure had caught her by surprise. She stripped the ribbon and the paper from the package he handed her and found inside a blue Fabergé box. I lay on the floor and put my head between my front paws. No! Mr. Sinatra! She said that with tears coming into her eyes. This is absolutely beautiful. She spread her hands over me and lifted me up to his face. This little one is your dog, she said. You got the feeling his blue eyes were able to watch themselves watching you. Hey, I was out of line, buddy, he said, stroking my ear and flicking it. I should have said hello when I came in. Hey, buddy, you're going to be a present for Marilyn. She's in New York? Asked Natalie. Yeah, she's been blue. Finished with Miller? Done and done, said Frank. She's at half-mast. So many presents. I tell you for nothing, Mr. Sinatra. You are a generous man. My husband agrees. Always a generous man. Toi, Natasha, also. Mother, enough. You are embarrassing, Frank. 
You are. And I love it. The noise upstairs got louder. It was as if furniture was being dragged around. You could hear a door handle being pulled, and suddenly Mr. Gurdon was shouting over the banister. His wife was still weeping with gratitude and a sense of national loss when Nick himself started shouting, but the sound of his voice instantly mortified her, killing the sentiment, turning off the tears. Crickpot! Nick shouted. Goddamn crickpots and communists, I tell you! All reds! Reds in my own goddamn house! Sinatra smiled, and I saw a sting of cruelty moisten his eyes. It's Nicky boy. Oh, pipe down! Said Natalie, giddily over her shoulder. She mocked back at him. Pipe down, Fad. It makes me sorry, said Mrs. Gordon. I went out to the hall and could see Nick hanging over the banister, his face all grey and furious, and a bottle dangling. We pledge ourselves to fight with every means at our organized command. Any effort of any group or individual to divert the loyalty of the screen from the free America that gave it birth. Holy smoke, said Sinatra. He's giving us the statement of principles. Stop it, Nikolai! Don't sweat it, Mud. He's drunk. Straight up, said Sinatra. It's the old ragtime, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. No oh, heavens, he must stop. It's terrible, said Mud. Shout it out, Nicky boy, said Sinatra. We dedicate our work, shouted Mr. Gordon again. <laughs> Natalie rolled her eyes and knocked back her Gibson. Work, huh? That's cute, she said. He hasn't worked since he left Vladivostok. In the fullest possible measure. No, that's not fair, Natasha. Said Mrs. Gordon. He has tried to work like any man. Dream on, mother. He's a waste of oxygen. Wise guy, huh? Said Sinatra. The presentation of the American scene, its standards and its freedoms, its beliefs and its ideals, as we know them and believe in them. Shout it out, you two-bit hustler, yelled Sinatra. I have a good mind to come up there and break your legs. There were threats and curses. One of the other dogs ran into the kitchen howling. I don't think I'd ever witnessed such chaos, you know, whether in Scotland, England, or Pan Am, or in quarantine. And it ended with Mrs. Gordon threatening to pray, or pray to one of her icons, or Romanovs, or whoever she thought might bring this whole nightmare to an end. There was a moment of silence when Nicky Boy upstairs ended the hostile fire and slammed the door shut before Natalie started one of her theatrical cackles, looking at Mudda's lips, which were still moving in silence. You think my mother's interested in stardom, she said to Frank, but what he really cares about is zardom. <laughs> Mrs. Gordon wrapped me in a blanket along with a rubber bone. Take it easy, funny girl. Frank said to Natalie, to Natalie. Your mother's a widow. I wouldn't give a dime for that lemon popsicle upstairs. Not a dime. He's a total nut. You actually like my mother? Why, sure, said Frank. She was a ballet dancer once, said Natalie, biting her lip and showing some wish she had to be proud of her mother. Mr. Sinatra touched her chin and lifted a pickled onion from his glass, tossing it into the air and catching it in his mouth. Now you be careful on that picture. Keep your nose clean. You're still working on it, right? Remember, Kazan is a rat. Just like that deadbeat upstairs. A snitch. Any flack, 
You just get on the horn to me, princess. I'm nervous, Frank. They think I'm still the little girl in pigtails. No, just do your work, Miss Moscow. Said Frank. And remember, you owe him nothing. Not Kazan, not Jack Warner, or him upstairs, neither. You earned the right. Those shit heels are lucky to have you. Across the lawn and into the car, I could hear Mud's holy recriminations on the upper floor. I heard a bottle smashing as she shouted in Russian. Mr. Sinatra took the blanket off me and placed me down on the furry covers of the back seat. There was a faint whiff of Sicily about Frank, a hint of lemons and jasmine, and I wasn't sure if it was the flowers he gave, uh, the food he liked, aqua de palma, or just some long lost scent that lingered about his skin. Two, Marilyn meets Marth the dog. Mr. Sinatra was whistling in the dark hallway, spinning his hat on his finger when the lift opened on the 13th floor and Vince handed me over. Frank's great joke was to place me inside the apartment and let me find my way to Marilyn. The door was open. I stepped over a pair of stiletto shoes covered in bright grey rhinestones, Ferragamo, it said inside them, and stopped to nibble the strap of a Pucci handbag that leaned against a drinks trolley. She was nowhere to be seen, so I sat down on a copy of Paris Match. Go on, Shoe. Keep walking, shitstick. Stage whispered Frank from the front door, bending down and urging me on. The carpet was white and fluffy, and it smelled of, you know, carbolic soap, an English smell of rotting flowers. When I got to the living room, I could hear her voice. Then I saw she was sitting in a Louis XV provincial-style ivory and yellow painted chair. Her nice legs folded under her. She wore a lace dress. The chair was right next to a small white piano and she was speaking on the telephone, her head tilted back, her eyes absorbing the light coming from a cut glass clock that hung above the television. It isn't a story for Marilyn Monroe. She was saying. I guess he's a good writer, but the girl is some kind of tramp, right? Well, Lou, I happen to know she wouldn't say those lines. She couldn't. There's no sugar in them. And there's no Cherie in them. And gee, Lou, there's no me in them. Don't you think that's important? If I'm going to play a tramp, I'd sooner do rain for CBS. Lee says I'm ready. Mr. Morn wants me, right? She didn't see me coming in. She listened like an old-fashioned listener, ready to learn, ready to change, alert to the sudden wisdom that makes all the difference. She bit her nails one minute and twisted the phone wire the next. It was a feast to my hungry ears. But don't you ever just want to surprise yourself, Lou? I don't want to do an imitation of myself, okay? I'm on a freedom ride, Lou. I'm always running into people's unconscious. She laughed and poured some champagne from a bottle next to the telephone. Are you listening to me? I'm a monster, Lou, okay? I accept that. Now listen here. But yes, yes, I was born nervous. Listen here, Lou. I had never seen anyone so enraptured on the phone before. She seemed to have forgotten about Frank, and she only noticed me when she put back the receiver. Wow! She said. Oh, Lord! Wow! Hattie, Lena, Frankie. She was the only girl I ever knew who could whisper an exclamation. <laughs> she lifted me into her arms and kissed me there as if I was the returning hero. And I did feel special, you know, 
for a moment, held up high by Marilyn like a dog who finally had worked things out about life and made it home. <laughs> well met, comrades. Marlin's helpers came rushing into the room with Frankie laughing. Oh, my. Oh, how darling. Oh, my lord. Oh, the baby. Oh, the baby. Little thing. Just uh, a pooch I picked up on the West Coast. He's from England. Oh, a proper gentleman. <laughs> I guess I love him, Frankie. Good, honey. He's for you. I love him. Natalie Wood's mother deals in dogs. She said. She finds them and she, well, she collects them. That's how I found the ankle biter. Hattie the cook and Lena, the housekeeper, disappeared out of the room in a flurry of warm and tender mouthings. It seemed like they were really happy. Every girl needs a man around the house, said Frank. Her eyes had filled up. Gee. What's his name gonna be? Asked Frank. She rubbed my nose with hers and it felt like it was stone cold. This little tough guy, gee. How about Brit? Said Frank. Cradling me in her arms, she looked very tender, a long lock of blonde hair falling over one eye. She caught her breath and smiled a perfect smile. You mean like English? Nah, he said. I think you should name him after Sammy's new wife. She's Swedish. Brit's a good enough name for a blonde. No, she said. He's a tough guy, isn't he? I'm calling him Mafia. <laughs> Mafia Honey. Oh, that's cute, kiddo. She kissed me again and let out a little cascade of giggles. You like it? That's fresh. You read too many newspapers. Oh, I don't read any. <laughs> if I want to see myself, I can look in the bathroom mirror. I'll give you Mafia, wise guy. He smiled and wandered out of the room to find his coat. Sizzle, Maltese, Mafia honey. Is there any chance of sticking to a name around here? <laughs> Scott Fitzgerald once said that there could never be a good biography of a writer because a writer is too many people if he's any good. I buy that. I believe it. Writers mattered to Marilyn. She was reading a fat Russian novel that whole period in New York, carrying it everywhere in her bag. She read it very slowly, and perhaps she gave it more respect than it deserved. It made her feel accompanied. Three, Marlin and Marv visit the Castelli Gallery. The Castelli Gallery was situated in a dark townhouse. Marlin wanted to spend an hour looking at some new pictures We'd heard a lot about the artist, this 37-year-old jazz fan called Roy Lichtenstein. As soon as we entered, Mr. Castelli came over and kissed Marilyn's hand. He had a very Italian willingness to be charming, and I could see from my level that he had put a lot of thought into his shoes, a pair of velvet slippers that still blushed with the cobbler's pride. Mr. Castelli enjoyed uh, pointing out that the painting in his gallery had no meaning, no meaning at all. They were meaningless. It is an optical experience. Humor is the only acknowledgement possible. He was epigrammatically inclined. Everything he said was a fast, brutal truth, a clean stab of insight. He took a breath between each word. For those who live in the gray areas of life, it could prove a very exciting but strangely emptying kind of talk. 
Castelli dispensed his great utterances as a child might sprinkle sugar in their frosties. These are post-historical history paintings. He said. No ideas, but in things. This your genius is simple-minded. He said. Laughter and colour are the only answers to modern life. We walked further into the room and the canvases he was talking about had been stood against the walls rather than hung up. These are the Lichtensteins? Asked Marilyn. Yes. He said. Cartoon objects, cartoon characters, cartoon meanings. Lightness is the new profundity. Wow. She said. That's right. Wow is right. Wow is the new why. I sniffed the base of a canvas called Washing Machine 1961. The back, math, honey. She said. Stand back. The one hanging up was very yellow and blue, and it showed a chatty Mickey Mouse fishing with Donald Duck. But it's all so different, so different from what you used to do, Leo. She said. She bit her lip and laughed to make it clear it wasn't a criticism. Her breathiness was a cartoon too. We are like sharks. We must keep swimming or else we die. Immediacy is everything, darling, everything. Roy started by doing bubblegum reports. He's so sweet. I mean, sweet. They are more real than the real thing. I mean, they have a better reality. I love them. Are they hand-drawn? Yes. Said Mr. Castelli. Uh, but Roy would be happier if they were done by a machine. <laughs> the thing is with these new boys, they don't really believe in death, or they don't understand it. It's not like Picasso, who exuded death, no? <laughs> who was like Goya, emitting death. No, those boys don't understand that. They only know life. All the pop artists want to burn, 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 you know, and repeat everything. They're so caught up in life, they just don't have time for death. <laughs> Poor Pablo. Poor Pablissimo. Hmm, I said. Maybe it's time to start looking into death. We're all pop artists when the lights are on. The gallery room had deep brown panelling, and Marilyn wondered what it would have been like to come to a salon here, maybe at a showing of Whistler or something, when the visiting ladies wore puffed sleeves and large, beautiful hats. Some people say it is anti-art, continued Mr. Castelli. They say the material is not transformed, and the pictures are not composed, but I say to hell with that. I say drop dead. I think, I think it's cute. She said. But isn't it kind of cold? Oh, Marilyn, baby, don't sound like them. Some curators say it's fascistic and militaristic. They think it's despicable. What else are they going to say? These men from Mars or Harvard Square. I think they ought to see a lot more. Do more seeing. Do you think these pictures are very American? She twisted the waistband of her skirt and bit the stem of her sunglasses, tilting her head. Mr. Castelli looked at her blue scarf and thought it very clean. They're the acme of industrial. Cartoons are the only politics we recognize. They're anti-contemplative, anti-nuance, anti-getting away from the tyranny of the triangle. They are anti-movement and light, anti-mystery, anti-pain quality, anti-zen, and anti-all those brilliant old ideas that everybody understands and depends on so thoroughly. Marilyn's cherry-colored smirk bloomed into a laugh. <laughs> 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 
That's a hell of a lot of ante to put into one washing machine. Uh, it'll take, he said. Disposability is the new permanence. A column of ants was marching round the frame edge of a lovely sash window, talking like the critic Clement Greenberg. He just went round and round the window casing, failing to get away from the tyranny of the rectangle, the window framing the bustle of New York. The ants were speaking the name Jasper Johns, and they said something about the influence of old Willem de Kooning. They marched together and talked over each other, trying to get a word in, blinded by the light, eager to hit on a theory about the prodigiousness of American invention. When Mr. Castelli and Marilyn came from the back room, he had his arm around her, and they were still talking. I snoozed for a time in one of the black tiles while he showed her some drawings. My dream was grey, and I woke up startled. Gee, you've been so kind to us, Leo. Hasn't Mr. Castelli been kind, Mav? She looked down at me, and I tilted my head. I have an appointment with my analyst, she said. Better not be late, or that will figure. <laughs> Mr. Castelli smiled and kissed her in a very European way as she reconstructed her disguise. The sunshine popped with whiteness outside, and as we touched the sidewalk, I saw a young, pasty-faced blonde man coming past us up onto the stoop. He was carrying a folder marked, More Popeye. Everything is so glamorous, he said to the person walking at his side. Gee, I think we should go to Bergdorf Goodman after this. The man who spoke was wearing a bow tie. He didn't notice Marilyn. His skin was poor, and his eyes were pink and filled with wonder. The black man with the harmonica was reading a copy of the Negro Motorist Green Book. They say I should feel liberated, he said. How am I meant to feel liberated if I ain't got no car? This seemed to me a very low-grade kind of a comment. <laughs> That's one noisy dog you got there, lady. I'm shocked. I said, I'm shocked. Haven't you got better things to think about? Come on, Math, said my owner. I barked at the man. Don't you know there's a revolution coming down, brother? <laughs> I sniffed his shoes and growled, turning to Marilyn. As I thought, when he's not reading the racist driving book, he's reading Uncle Remus. I mean, that is some goddamn stupid nonsense made up by some human to prove the baseness of animals, no? I mean, all that brer rabbit, he took the chillings by dead years and made them set down. The wise old bespectacled darky telling tales to the kid of Aunt Sally. You're always buzzing, little dog. Quit molesting me. Come here and I'll kiss your nice white face. I ain't no bone. Math! The dog, he, he likes to say his peace, miss. Marlin was quite puzzled by the man's words. She reckoned he was one of those refugees out of Bellevue, mad or half mad. She put me up in her shoulder and I yapped at the man as we walked away. Certain human beings, I tell you, they're beyond me. Certain human things as well, like sticking out your tongue. Marilyn loosened the collar and placed me back on the ground. You are a bad dog. Trotsky said, there's no place for self-satisfaction at the point of revolution. Stop yapping, Math. She said. Be quiet now. Gee, quiet, what's got into you today? Every human has his day. <laughs> Yet they forget we're all animals. Let me tell you, speciesism is no better than racism. It comes from the same dense briar of unimagination. Non-human animals outnumber man by trillions, yet we are assigned successively lower places in Aristotle's great scala naturae. 
the great chain of being. But I say, at least, I said as we walked towards Central Park, let us not assume that the great outnumbering beast must always bow down before the opinions of men, which are often dumber than anything we could manage. Four, the great Lee Strasberg. Mr. Strasberg came into the rehearsal space. He was a, a guru, the magician, the mangy old cartoon cat. He was nervous about his own femininity. Perhaps that was why he often spoke in verse. But in secret, he had studied Colette and sought to think like a cat wherever possible. The students were gleeful and breathless with promise. They sat in rows and examined old Strasbourg's whiskery face. What was he thinking in those seconds before he spoke, they wondered. I'll tell you, shall I? It rolled to me like a polished dime across the resined floorboards. He was thinking of Kiki La Doucette, Colette's cat who roamed the green-walled rooms of her apartment in the Rue de Carcel, depositing its dainty mess on the parquet floor. The apartment in Paris was bitter, as Lee recalled it unhappy. He remembered Natalie Barney saying that Colette chose her animals for the resemblance to herself. She later gave Kiki the starring role in her novel Dialogue the Bet, a masterpiece of the form, I have to say. When Lee wanted to achieve a sense of intelligent peace, he would attempt to access a memory of snow as it fell in Paris on the last day of 1908. He remembered a letter of Colette's where she spoke of the snow falling. Like a chenille veil powdery and vanilla on the tongue. And he considered this as he looked at the beautiful people sitting down before him in the actor's studio. I have a voice too, I said to Kevin. It's been getting bigger and better for months. I must confess, I giggled. Sitting on Mr. McCarthy, I caught his memory of something my owner had said to him once. Lee taught me how to breathe as an actor, she said. I mean, there are other things breathing is useful for, so I've heard. Hold tight, little guy, said Kevin. Lee Strasberg brought his eyes down from the ceiling and placed them directly on me, so I snuggled down. Sadness may be a science, but acting is not. Observe the moment. <laughs> Frozen in thought, we sailed to this country on lousy ships with honor to see the old world eclipsed. And now I ask you to concentrate hard, listen, and so on. See the human enlarged. On the Lower East Side, Kicking my heels, I once spent my days in a world like O'Neill's. The bars, the docks, the immigrant ether. It made us sign up as the spirit's keeper. Even now, I can smell the wig maker's glue. Memory and so on. It makes us true. Do not debase the silence with applause. Acting is being private in public because the art of experiencing is the art of life. Not representing Garbo or a man and wife, but 
total consciousness is the only aim, feeling, and so on, the human again. Go to the person you have always been. Find there the spring and the jolt of the scene. Smell it and taste it. Touch it some more. A zest of an orange, a painful divorce, the first time your father left out the kiss, regret and so on, makes the moment insist. Imagination is the god of all. Do you hear that, Henry? Marilyn? Paul? Show nothing you know of the scene in advance. Just come home alone as if from a dance to find the newness peeling like golden bells from a place somewhere inside of yourselves. That is the system, the method, the scheme, hard work and so on, but source your dream. Stanislavski and I disagree on some points. For the master was big on straining the joints. He wanted action and the passion of doing, the play of hands in Iago's ruin. But emotion's the heart of the scene for me. Discovery and so on. Creative being. So settle down, Tommy. Focus, Roberta. Here is a story of depression in America. Please expose your own sensitivity to the lonesome pain of Anna Christie. The actors will seek to give what they have, showing courage and so on, the mark of our craft. For this is our glory, dear actors, dear friends, to make ourselves equal to living portents. On occasion, we falter. At times we forget. But heaven remains in the standard we set. We seek to capture the mysteries of time, belief, and so on. The common sublime. They found it painful not to clap. This was Strasbourg at his famous, sentimental best, exultant and prodigious, with large tears, large tears sparkling in his ruined eyes. In this way, he was a model of how to move people with the sheer scale and power of personal emotion. He didn't have better arguments than other teachers, purer lines or more original ideas, but he had deeper reserves of feeling than most others and he could draw them instantly to the surface in ways that struck the group as being the very soul of charisma. Four, Marlon and Marth attend a New York books party. The party was at Alfred Kazin's place on Riverside Drive, an apartment with books piled on the stove, ice heaped in the bath, tapenades smeared on the crackers, the English huddled in the hallway, and the beatniks on the fire escape. Mr. Kazin had a connection with Carson McCullers that was sentimentally intense. He was humbled by her manners and her talent, 
a small boy's face that made him nervous. Mary McCarthy mentions you in April's issue. He said. She says you and Gene Stafford carried the torch for the writing of Sensibility today. Mr. Kazin's eyes narrowed every time he was about to launch an idea. You know how it is with Mary. She wants everything cut and diced. She imagines the new crowd, her, young Updike, are like mimics, actors, where an abundance of care is used in the mechanics of the imitation. She likes it that way. Well, said Carson, I'm damn sure Mary knows well enough what she's talking about. Yeah, well, she has the tendency to be overawed by her own discriminations. He said. I don't know, said Carson. But I'd say that was the critic's prerogative. I thought of Mr. Cyril Connolly and was excited for a moment he might be there. He wasn't. At the same time, a man called Marius Bewley tripped up quite homosexually. <laughs> he was with a man who smoked a pipe as if he were playing a cello. Bewley's large moon face appearing through the fog. Bewley glanced at his friend. I've never seen a briar do such sterling work, he said. Carson sniggered and gladly accepted a martini proffered by sensitive fingers. Marius, we were just discussing Mary's piece about character in fiction. Oh yes, all that hissing jargon. Mary assumes that comic characters are by definition real, while serious people like myself are figments. My dears, I am no less real than Leopold Bloom. I may be averse to cheap soap and the tang of urine, but I am real. Touch me if you like. Damn right, said Carson. Y'all as real as Edith Sitwell. She laughed, she coughed, until two grey spots appeared on her cheeks. She thought Bewley the very spice of literature. I'm as real as Jay Gatsby, dear. I'm much more serious than Dame Edith. Do you want to know what Randall said about Mary McCarthy? She said, torn animals are removed at sunset from that smile. Ha! <laughs> That's the funniest thing I heard in months, said Carson. Months! She means months, said Mr. Kazin. Am I not objectively existent, said Mr. Bewley. You're on fire, sister. She means fire, said Mr. Kazin. <laughs> I met her brother, I said. His name is Kevin. I, I sat on his lap at the actor's studio. Now look at this little white dog. Mr. Bewley sighed and shook his head. Oh, to be young and innocent again. Mr. Kazin lifted me up and walked me through the crowd to get to the kitchen where a dish of water was kindly made available. I was up on the draining board. Next to me, leaning against the stove, a Dr. Annan of King's College, Cambridge, was speaking to a poet about the doctor's recent evidence in the Lady Chatterley trial. Dwight MacDonald wrote about it in the Partisan Review. He said, a hand reached between us and lifted a bottle of vermouth. I did indeed, said Mr. MacDonald, his cuff all wet from being dipped in my dish. Hello, Noel. That was a very sprightly performance in court number one. Oh, one has to do one's bit, said Dr. Annan. Now, have you met my friend? Frank O'Hara, said the poet, putting out his hand in a cramped way. Oh, yes, said MacDonald. I read Kenneth Conscious' piece about you in the last issue. It was a sweet article, said O'Hara, shyly. A poet from the fire escape made O'Hara smile by calling him a square and a beauty. I looked round at the sound of the cracked voice. The man had whiskers and was more like a lion than a cat. A big poet of the jungle with his chunky spectacles and holy whispers. It was Allen Ginsberg. He was drinking wine from a jug and, and offering revelations to people asking about his long poem, a thing I was bound to like, called Howl. <laughs> he was excited about life and he had his own boisterous crowd, other poets, a drunk from Times Square with a bashed face. 
Last thing I saw in the fire escape was Ginsburg attacking Columbia University and taking a young man's face in his hands, kissing him and saying, with no small degree of relish. Trust is an intimate conspiracy, shanty shanty. Trust is Mae West's asshole. Is that in your book, in your poem? Said the young man. Nope. Said the poet. It's just for you. Sweet. Said MacDonald to O'Hara. He said you were the best writer about New York alive. That's very sweet, said O'Hara. I rested my head and surveyed the room. Why do critics always look like unhappy rabbits, I thought. <laughs> Kazan tickled me under the chin and put me down on the floor. It was great, you know, just to walk among the shoes. There were lace-ups and heels, sandals and boutique boots. Some of them like beautiful drawings I had recently seen in the women's magazines. I followed the trail of Chanel number no. five in the hope of finding Marilyn. I passed a great many people, some of them touching hands and all of them gripping drinks, the youngest one's eyes now and then flashing with terror. I passed one pair and looked up to see a man called Jacob trying to be kind to a girl of eager solemnity. A good magazine, Susan. It was Susan, right? It's, it's not only about what it puts in, but about what it keeps out. Ah, she said, this Susan one. The natural despotism of literary selection. I like it very much. Her eyes appeared to darken with excitement. I am writing something about the comedy of high seriousness. Not an essay so much as a series of jottings, a cascade of pensées. And uh, what, do, what do they indicate, these jottings? That the world is an ascetic phenomenon. It's about a sensibility, the idea that there is a good taste of bad taste. Ah, uh, so it's about Oscar Wilde. Oscar. <laughs> Oscar, yes. But also, Tiffany Lamps, the novels of Ronald Furbank, Shota Sachs, King Kong. So it's about innocence? Perhaps. She said, making a mental note. But also about seriousness, a seriousness that fails. It's also about extravagance, empathy, and the glorification of character. Life as theater. So it's about homosexuals. <laughs> not all Jews are liberals, and not all queers are artistic. No, most are, if they're good at what they do. <laughs> good at who they are. That's a very funny. Uh -huh. Thank you, young lady. Pass the ashtray. Can you give me another example of the thing you're talking about? Well, Garbo's face. The wings of a dove, the rhetoric of de Gaulle, the brown derby restaurant on Somerset Boulevard. That's four examples. <laughs> I've had too many martinis. She said, you'll find the brown derby is on Wiltshire, I said. <laughs> Shoo that dog away, said Susan. I, I don't trust dogs, the way they sniff. Half a room later, I stopped at the ankles of a woman with several holes in her stockings. She was very loud very loud, and wearing a pair of reptile-skin shoes by Francois Pini, absorbed without hesitation that she was Lillian Hellman. She was smoking a long cigarette and dangling a glass of vodka down by her side, splashing my nose. I licked up the puddle of booze at her feet and sat under a nest of tables to eavesdrop. She was tougher on the editors of the magazine than she was on Joseph Stalin, and I soon found I wanted to bite her. The woman was totally in love with herself, I'm telling you, which was bad enough, but she also disliked Marilyn because of Arthur. She was waiting for her chance to say something nasty. In the time I spent under those tables, she found something vile to say about everybody she mentioned, 
First, it was Marilyn. So vulgar, you wouldn't believe it. They say she killed Clark Gablestone dead with her lateness on the misfits. Then it was the magazine. Don't make me laugh. Partisan review is the house journal of the nation's liberal cowardice. Why are you here then? Asked a nice looking painter called Robert Motherwell. I like to feast with my enemies, darling. Then it was Norman Mailer. <laughs> He's been looking for someone to stab for years. And Adele was looking for years for someone to stab her. They were perfect together. Existential hero, my ass. Norman couldn't fight his way out of a pillowcase. His career is over. That's harsh. Said Mr. Poderetz, gliding up. Norman's honest. Honest? My ass. She said. You know something, Lillian? You ought to try just for once being generous. Norman's in trouble, and he's been good to you. Good to me, my ass. No, he was good to you, and he was good to Dash when he was ill. You should be ashamed to go talking like that. I haven't been out since Dash died. Well, he said, I'll put it down to that. You know what Degas said of Whistler? He said he behaved as if he had no talent. That's just the worst thing you can say about an artist. Well, Lillian, think about it. <laughs> Aren't you the moral arbiter? She said. I might believe you, Norman, if Commentary Magazine ever gets up and says a single brave thing before it dies. Why don't you just go back to troubling those pot smokers? People change, Lillian. Uh, you won't, Norman. You've been licking people's self-inflicted wounds for them until doomsday. Stephen Spender, a cat sloping among cats, grazed past her and she sent a dirty look like a harpoon into his back. This is a new era for America, said one of the editorial assistants called Jane. Get me another vodka stinger, honey, said Miss Hellman with a boiling face. She turned. You are all adult Trotskyist, as dictated by lunacy. I'm sorry to say, Comrade Trotsky is a traitor. I was glad I opposed his application for American asylum. Everything went blank, and I just launched myself from under the tables and sunk my teeth into her nylon-clad ankle. <laughs> she screamed loudly, and people stepped back from her. Help! I'm being attacked! Oh! Me. She said, I didn't hang on for long or anything. Mr. Kazen was there in an instant, lifting me up. Is that Mrs. Miller's door? She shouted. No fuss, Lillian. Is it? God damn it, the dog bit me for telling the truth. I'll sue. No fuss, I said. He examined her ankle. Oh, there are no cuts and it's all over. Don't fuss, Lillian. Not, not even a scratch. This is a swell party and he's just a little dog. It's hot in here for a dog. And... Could someone open a window? When Mr. Kazen placed me back on the floor, a number of, number of his friends patted me. <laughs> I wandered out from that hall of pretty shoes and was soon among the brogues. A young man had a girl up against the bathroom door. They were sharing a cigarette and a love of Samuel Beckett. Hellman's play is about consumerist madness. He said. It just closed at the Hudson. Well, it's about the brutality of shopping, but hell, she's the biggest shopper in the business. She's the only Stalinist in the history of the world to have done a, you know, started an ad spot for mink coats. God, she's quite fierce, isn't she? Said the girl. Old scaly bird. Following the perfume trail, I found Marilyn in the bedroom up against the white bookcase. She was standing with Lionel Trilling and his wife, Diana. 
while Irving Howe sat looking at them from the armchair armor of a William Morris upholstery chair. My owner had that lovely, strange, underwater look in her face, and she was listening, listening intently. I stood in the shadow box of the doorway when it occurred to me that this was a play, and with a certain taste in my mouth, a taste of Hellman, <laughs> I could see myself as the author. As Cicero said, honor encourages the arts. Trilling is wearing an elegant sports jacket, a dark tie, holding a pipe at an angle to his thoughts. Diana is wearing a midnight blue dress with a jacket over the top, a brooch pinned to her breast as if to guarantee her dignity. Her lips are stained grey, but I guess that's just a dog seeing red. Mr Howe is wearing light trousers, a pair of soft shoes and a cotton jacket with pencils sticking out of the top pocket. The room has a strong sense of the setting sun. The sound of Dizzy Gillespie comes from another room. Trilling, careful, noble, unassailable. Let us call it the romance of culture. No, Lionel. No. I simply can't believe we have enough reason to begin thinking of art as a narcotic. Well, Diana, one might do better to insist on the notion that no work of art can ever be divorced from its effect. The brothers Karamazov is no kind of narcotic, but for the sensitive reader, it may nevertheless possess a homeopathic character. Tragedy's function is to prepare us, to inure us as human beings, as a society, even to what we may experience as the pain of life. So art is simply a narcotic, uh, an escape? Mm, no, an engagement. The very opposite of escape, the very opposite. In comedy, we find reality. We find the essence of man as a living creature. Too true. Mr. Kazan believes that Dostoevsky is the master critic of our civilization. Is that so? Do you mean, is that the case? I, I would say it is arguable, le yes. Uh, let's see what Lionel says. In the essay of Freud's Miss Monroe mentioned a few moments ago, Dostoevsky and Parasite, Freud says that psychoanalysis can have no real purchase on the artist. Yet he understands Dostoevsky to be a very great writer indeed, and a high culture prophet who could summon the forces at work not only in man, but in civilization itself. But you are interested in Grushenka, and I must say, I believe that is where the author's genius actually finds its bearings in the blend of tragedy and comedy that informs his rendering of the secondary characters in that powerful work. Do you think she's funny? Anything truly alive is funny. Really? Oh, so Khrushchev is funny, Leopold and Loeb, Adolf. Khrushchev is not unfunny. What do you think, Miss Monroe? Well, he came to the studio. Khrushchev, I mean. <laughs> when was it? Last year? Uh, the year before? They had a dinner in the commissary at Fox. I thought he was very funny. Kooky. I mean, odd. But I liked him. He once told Nixon all shopkeepers were thieves. Nixon grew up in a shop <laughs> or something. Uh, there you have it. You're looking pensive, Irving Howe. As Diana looks towards the window, Mr. Howe 
fiddles with the pencils in his top pocket. Diana sips her martini. She looks as if she's baiting the insides of her cheeks. Yes, Dostoevsky and Dickens are writers who show us the comedy of realism, the tragedy of intellectual life, the wonders of psychology. Each of them is a prophet and his religion is humanity. Very good, Irving. Very good indeed. The work is full of buffoonery. I'm, I'm sure, but I'm sure the Brothers Kazimarov is very serious. It is serious. There's nothing so serious as comedy. Go on, Irving. The novel is political to the marrow of its bones. In the world of Dostoevsky, no one is spared. But there is a supreme consolation. No one is excluded. Like Dickens, he populates his books with true people. Dickens sets in motion a line of episodes. The Picaro is defined by his energy and his voice, and he moves from adventure to adventure, each cluster of incidents bringing him into relation with a new set of characters. Via Fielding, the great influence on Dickens was the Picaresque. A novel must not only reveal the world, but it must be a world. Show me a good novel and I will show you a center of vibrancy. Why, this dog could write a novel and I would read it tomorrow. It would no doubt be a piratical compilation from the works of old Spanish masters, old British masters. So be it. Let's have it. We need more of this. Where are today's comic novels? It is the heartbeat of the form. That's how society might be examined, and our examinations, God save us, might even prove to be entertaining. That's my argument. Well, it's not much of an argument. Oh, I think it's neat. Neat? Sure, I think it's neat. You have lost me, Irving. Are you suggesting that it might benefit our, <laughs> our, our national literature if works were to be conceived by workers and servants and by, by dogs? The Brothers Karamazov is really the story of the domestic servants. All great stories are about the servants. That's outrageous. I mean, even King Lear. It's the fool's story. And the Brothers K is Smidjakov's story. I yapped with excitement and put myself into the play. <laughs> oh, look, it's the hero of the hour. At least Irving Howe was agile and open in his absurdity, perhaps too open. I think he was standing too close to me, picking up my propaganda, the taste of my experience, you know, my will to power. Mr. Trilling, on the other hand, was a puzzle, uh, a puzzle of a much less benign sort. There was something sinister in Trilling's immense composure. People appeared to be awed by his carefulness, his patient discrimination, his gentle unwillingness to say too much or to think too little before speaking. His manner concealed fear, and so did his faith in culture. There was dirt and uncertainty out there in the world. Yes, Mr. Trilling knew it, and his project was to make his defenses impregnable. Not even his wife could quicken his cool blood, though God knows she made a good effort. Marilyn remarked to herself how very smart these people were and how decisive they seemed about everything. I'm afraid we've rather been monopolizing Miss Monroe, said Diana as Mr. Kazin came into the room, leading a bright and portly Edmund Wilson, who was sniffing into a handkerchief and holding a glass of whiskey. As we speak, Lillian is telling Carson she knows nothing about the South, said Alfred. She's saying Carson has never been to New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> the convergence of the twain, said Wilson, like a grand and busy bumblebee. 
I don't know if you've met Miss Monroe, said Diana, always polishing the silverware. Hello, madam. Marlin put out her hand. Charmed, I'm sure. Wilson tapped his tummy and looked at Lionel. It was like the meeting in the forest between Mary and Elizabeth and Mary Stuart. Each bowed almost imperceptibly and Wilson coughed. Schiller himself might have coughed at the throat-tickling buzz which Wilson felt passing through his body as he gulped his whiskey and began to talk. As people often do, do around dogs, they used me as the excuse for a little small talk. And you can see instantly that neither of these men was built for small talk. When Henry James was old and tired, Wilson said, he could be seen moving down the high street in Rye with his dog, Maximilian, trotting behind him. Ah, yes. The dog that may embody the finer feelings. I believe Maximilian was a long-lived Tosca's successor. Adel wrote that Maximilian appeared to have some of James's authority. Too right, I said. <laughs> These humans, you know, they might be onto something. Thanks so much. Um, I know that Andrew Hawley's got a car waiting to fire him back to some uh, ridiculous film set. So um, please, uh, would you join me just in case any of them have to leave during this little question part. Um, I've been so thrilled to be working with these friends of mine, these wonderful actors. Please give, give it up again if you would for Andrew Hawley, Suzanne Berkey and Ian McDermott. It appears we have time for a couple of questions. I think we um, had hoped for more, but we'd write the uh, presentation took a wee bit longer. So if anybody wants to ask anything, please stick your hand up and we'll get, we'll get them in. Um, is there anybody? Yes. There's a mic, I think. I, I thought you said it was a novel. <laughs> it's a play. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when I set out to write this novel, I knew that there would be... Uh, it would give me the one opportunity I'd ever take uh, to get a cast of characters inside uh, a book um, who were lively, comic, real and absurd. And I'd always hoped that when the time came to that we'd be able to present it in this way. But now that you've got the voices in your head, you'll be able to read the novel quite happily. <laughs> How much research did you have to do with all this all these millions of characters? An unhealthy amount, <laughs> is the answer. Um, the research began a long time ago. Um, how long have we got? Um, I was born in 1968. Um, no, um, 10 years ago, um, almost exactly, there was a sale of Marilyn Monroe's personal belongings at Christie's in New York. I knew that uh, there was a tradition of Scottish literature that had always mattered to me, that great tradition of the talking animal, the satirical animal who spoke truth to humans that humans couldn't quite see for themselves. The greatest example, of course, being Robert Burns' The Twa Dugs, uh, where a local landlord is given his character, as my mother might say, 
by these two dogs, Caesar and Luth, discussing uh, in the most sophisticated way the moral wrongs of their time. I'd always loved that tradition, and it's everywhere in literature. It's there in Henderson, it's there in Ferguson. You look back at the great uh, tradition of Scottish literature and you find it, and I wanted to reinvent it for now. There was always all the dangers attendant because, of course, you're asking a lot of the reader. But if you spend long enough on it, I think you can do it. Um, the research really kicked in, though. I had that voice in my head and that wish to do it. And at the Christie's sale in New York, I was confronted with what I thought was the most absurd situation I'd ever been in, where Marilyn's lipsticks, Kirby grips, uh, em half-empty bottles of shampoo were being bid and fought over by a bunch of, sort of New York designers and uh, rich people, um, waving their paddles furiously, trying to get a hold of them. Tommy Hilfiger was next to me, and uh, he wanted a pair of Marilyn Monroe's jeans from The Misfits that he could frame and put up above his uh, mantelpiece as if it was a Rembrandt. <laughs> and I believe it is to be found there, uh, acting the part of a Rembrandt. Um, so that it was a really interesting moment in culture, this sale, that suddenly the bric-a-brac of a star's life were held to be art objects. And I heard a little voice in my head, uh, unmistakably now, the voice of Math the dog. Um, his dog, uh, four li six little Polaroids of Math in Marlon's apartment came up for auction and they were quickly snapped up, not by me, I hasten to say, for $222,000. And at that point, uh, my sense of the Scottish tradition and the uh, antennae, <laughs> antennae for absurdity went out of control. I had to run back to the hotel and start taking notes. Ten years later, and many, many walkings down many byways in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, in London, in Sussex, in Aviemore, where the dog started its life, even more absurdly. Um, so I, I saw the opportunity, but it, only, it could only happen through the research, and it took years of almost being arrested. You know, but being in Bel Air without a car is an arrestable offence anyway. <laughs> But being a Scottish novelist, almost on his knees with a notepad, trying to get things from the dog's perspective, <laughs> uh, we almost immediately taken to the loony bin. So I survived to tell the tale. I think that's all we can do, question wise. Thanks. Andrew will be signing copies of this really fantastic book that you've had the most wonderful taste of today. He'll be signing in the signing tent just to the left, so please come, and if you have questions for him there, I'm sure he'll be generous enough to answer them. But I'd just like you to join once again in thanking all of the actors, and especially Andrew O'Hagan for a fantastic event. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.